Hey everyone, welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bostock, and today we'll be looking at some of the current events that have happened in the world over this past month. Now, some of these topics have been ongoing for some time, but have been either updated or have had new information come out about them within the past month. Today's topics will be the Tennessee Whiskey Fungus, the Willow Project, the Red Tide, and the IPCC report for the UN. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and as always, thank you for listening. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are on the threat of toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Because the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. This first topic is something out of the mind of a graphic novel writer. It also possesses some of the eerie qualities of a real-life The Last of Us storyline, which is the popular video game and recently turned TV show. A mysterious dark brown fungus fed by the vapors of aging Jack Daniels whiskey from a nearby distillery has begun overrunning a small town in Tennessee. Residents of Lincoln County describe a festering brown mass overtaking their homes, patios, cars, tree branches, and even road signs. This phenomenon isn't new. Ethanol-fueled fungus thrives around bakeries and distilleries and has been doing so for centuries. Famed makers of Tennessee whiskey, like Jack Daniels, wouldn't be strangers to the fungus as it is a byproduct of the alcohol-making process. Whiskey fungus, Latin name Bodonia capnicensis, is a habitat-colonizing fungus with a preference for airborne alcohol. Spirits like Jack Daniels require an aging process to build flavor and character in the whiskey. Now, there is some alcohol evaporation during this process, which Bodonia copnicensis feasts on. These vapors, called the angel's share by distillers, amount to around 1-2% to of alcohol lost from the barrel, and can also travel hundreds of yards, which accounts for the fungus's extensive presence in the areas that are distillery-adjacent. Although there is no overwhelming evidence to support that the fungus is toxic to humans, it does present other problems. The Jack Daniels Distillery is located in Moore County, and many residents of the nearby Lincoln County have reported the unsightly blight on their properties, and in some cases it is affecting their incomes. Christy Long owns a historic mansion in Lincoln County. She operates the mansion as a venue for weddings and other events, and she has reported spending thousands of dollars in order to periodically power wash every surface on her property, from the copper roofs to the branches of the magnolia trees. But still, the fungus always returns. At this time, Long and her husband have filed a lawsuit against local government officials 
seeking relief from the whiskey fungus and alleging that the Jack Daniels barrel storage facilities located near their property do not have the proper permits. At the beginning of March, Jack Daniels was ordered to halt the construction of another barrel warehouse. Recently, a court order instructed Lincoln County officials to halt the construction, citing that the permitting process was never fully completed. It is refreshing to see the courts actually acting on this instead of blatantly siding with the corporation. Now, I'll be sure to keep you all posted as the updates to this topic roll in. Now let's go ahead and move on to our second topic. Our second topic is the Willow Project. On March 13th, the Biden administration in the United States approved the controversial Willow Project, and this is to be undertaken on federal land in Alaska. Now, the Willow Project is a projected oil drilling project that is expected to last around 30 years. This project has not even began yet. The idea of starting a 30-year project for oil, especially for the Biden administration, comes as a shock to many. It seems like their big push is to phase out oil and bring in renewables and this kind of flips their narrative on its head. Now, like I said, it did come as a shock, and it has received a lot of pushback. Online petitions with over 3 million signatures have been passed around recently, and there have been over 1 million letters written to the White House. The project aims to retrieve and market oil from the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska, or NPRA, which is owned by the federal government. Now, the NPRA is the nation's largest piece of public land, and it's specifically in the North Slope region of Alaska, which is less than 30 miles away from the Arctic Ocean. The targeted area of the project is thought to hold over 600 million barrels of oil. The development of this project is being headed by ConocoPhillips, a Houston-based energy company. Currently, ConocoPhillips is the only company that has drilling rights in the MPRA. And it should be noted that this project is estimated to cost between $8 and $10 billion. And the projected outcome of this drilling is 576 million barrels over a period of 30 years. Now, if all goes to plan, this will be the largest oil project ever considered in the country. Although the Biden administration has gone through with this project, it was initially greenlit under the Trump administration in 2020. Now, the project was scaled down from about five drilling pads to only three drilling pads, and this amounts to roughly 199 drilling wells. While it was scaled down drastically, this still allows ConocoPhillips to drill for about 90% of the oil that they were originally pursuing. 
Now, some may ask why the government would go ahead and do this. Well, it turns out that the project could not be canceled or reduced significantly because ConocoPhillips already possessed valid leases in the region that were in place long before the current presidential administration came into power. And this was in the 1990s when those leases were made available. And oil was actually discovered in the MPRA in 2016 with exploratory wells. There would be legal repercussions if the Biden administration tried to terminate or even hinder this project. These would be steep fines and legal action. So this is basically the corporation controlling the government. And so if the Biden administration went ahead with the termination, it could cost taxpayers billions of dollars in expenses that would have to be paid out to the company if they were to win in court. Now, to be clear, the Willow Project drilling operations have not started yet. Initial gravel mining and road construction, however, has already begun. The project area of the operation is estimated to be about 499 acres. While the initial gravel mining and road construction has begun, there is further infrastructure that has yet to be put into place. This is roads, pipelines, airstrips, further gravel mines, and processing facilities. And these will be in the middle of the pristine Arctic tundra and wetlands. So one thing that hinders the construction is ice roads. Ice roads are required to build these infrastructures, meaning that the construction can only take place in the winter. Now, the winter season could potentially end in Alaska around the end of April, thus ending any progress until the next winter season. Environmental groups are mobilizing to actually stop this project. Earth Justice, an environmental law group, is aiming to file an injunction, and this legal tactic could stop or delay the project. And this means that the construction operations could be delayed by a year or so. The legal rationale observed by Earth Justice is that the Biden administration has the authority to protect surface resources on Alaska's public lands. And this includes taking steps to reduce carbon emissions. Now, there is legal rebuttals to this, and they're purported by state lawmakers, and they center around the idea of an economic boom, which would be job creations, reducing dependence on foreign oil, so a reliable domestic supply, and boosting domestic energy production. Local native groups, in fact a coalition of Alaska native groups, on the northern slope also actually support the project. To them, it's a source of income, and it can fund various services such as education and health care, which they so desperately need. And this would play into further severing reliance on the state and federal government.
Now, some natives are reluctant to go along with the project. Some indigenous peoples living in closer proximity to the project, however, in the village of Nusksut, are concerned about health and environmental impacts. So they're in fear of bad air quality, oil spills and leaks, and also blowouts. And this is a lot of the same stuff that we just covered in our last two episodes on the Deepwater Horizon disaster. From an environmental standpoint, the Willow Project is estimated to release 239 metric tons of carbon pollution per year. And this is equivalent to 1.7 million additional gas-powered cars on the road. And it's also projected to destroy habitat for native species. And these native species are caribou, whose migration paths will be disrupted, polar bears, whose habitats will be destroyed, as well as waterfowl, whose habitats will also be destroyed. And the waterfowl specifically, it'll likely be the nesting sites of the yellow-billed loon that could suffer the most. According to state lawmakers, Opting to produce oil domestically is actually safer than procuring it from other countries, citing that American methods of oil extraction have, quote, an environmental track record that is second to none. While campaigning in 2020, the Biden administration swore they would end new oil and gas drilling on public lands. And this drilling moratorium was quashed in 2021 by a judge. And so several new areas of drilling have since then opened up, and many of them have been challenged by environmental groups. Needless to say, the green lighting of this project would impede U.S. efforts to phase out fossil fuels. Stopping major investments in fossil fuels is the only way to seriously phase them out. Now, I mentioned earlier, Earth Justice is a coalition. So these co-plaintiffs in the coalition against ConocoPhillips is the Center for Biological Diversity, Defenders of Wildlife, Friends of the Earth, and Greenpeace USA. Now, I'm going to make sure to continue to monitor the outcome of the injunction And we will be sure to fill in to you, the listeners, with any other information as things progress. Now, the third topic of discussion today is the red tide. Now, the red tide is a bloom of toxic red algae, or as scientists prefer, harmful algal bloom, or HAB. A bloom results from the proliferation of toxic algae. Algae is a plant-like organism that lives in the sea and fresh water. Now their presence is somewhat normal, although it is typically minimal to the point of being undetectable. As the name suggests, red algae's presence gives the water a brownish-red hue. 
Now, this particular red algae's official name is Carinia brevis. Habs are regular occurrences in Florida, befalling the coastline nearly every summer. Now, currently, it is hugging the southwestern shores of Florida and attracting lots of media attention. Now, it's actually somewhat ahead of schedule. So some of the negatives of this red tide are dead fish washing up ashore and beachgoers plagued by respiratory issues. This season's bloom was first detected in early March by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Typically, the bloom accumulates along the coast in the fall, and in the winter, strong gusts of wind typically push the blooms downwind to the south. This year, there were no such wintry winds, meaning that the blooms just stuck around. In an article in the Washington Post, oceanographer Richard Stump is quoted as saying that this phenomenon, where red algal blooms linger through the winter and spring, quote, has happened twice in five years, which is a higher than normal frequency. If we tend to get fewer persistent northerly winds in the winter because of climate change, we will tend to see longer-lasting blooms. Now, exposure to these red algal blooms is dangerous for humans, pets, and marine life, as I mentioned earlier. These algal blooms produce toxins that can kill fish, shellfish, mammals, and birds. And people who eat shellfish that have been contaminated can also develop neurotoxic shellfish poisoning. These toxins can also make the air difficult to breathe, meaning they cause respiratory problems in humans. Along with that, they can also potentially cause other illnesses or problems in humans, such as skin irritations and eye irritations. These algal blooms also affect the health of the local and regional economies. In this case, for example, local businesses are likely to be affected by the spring break rush, or lack thereof. Now, not all algal blooms are harmful. Most are actually beneficial. They provide food for animals in the ocean, and they're part of the ocean food web. Now, blooms, whether toxic or non-toxic, can also produce another nefarious effect, however. Once they die and decompose, the decaying process can deplete large quantities of oxygen in the water, and this can cause the environment to become deoxygenated, forcing certain animals to either leave or die. Habs actually occur in every coastal state but they may be occurring more frequently. In 2021, 15 blooms had been reported at this point in time. Last year at this point in time, there were only two blooms reported. There have been 36 blooms reported as of March 9th of this year. And it should be noted that records for red tides are nothing new. In fact, in the Gulf of Mexico, red tide records date back as far as the 1840s. 
Now, it's not certain, but human-induced climate change is suspected to be contributing to longer-lasting red tides. Rising ocean temperatures and higher levels of carbon dioxide can contribute to rapid algal growth. And extreme weather events can also affect these. These weather events bring heavy rains, which cause more agricultural runoff to lead into the oceans. And so nutrient-dense fertilizer feeds K. brevis more than anything else. Indeed, the scientific consensus is that K. brevis tends to follow nutrients as per its growth patterns. When currents and weather systems push nutrients up from the seafloor, red algae tends to follow. Although red tide is normal, its elevated presence is not, and it may be cause for concern. Now, if we really want to get down to the root causes of this elevated presence, agricultural fertilization and climate change are two things that need to be addressed. Okay, so the last topic of this month's current events episode is the IPCC report for the UN. Here at Chronic Failure, our mission is to chronicle the Earth's stresses. And while we certainly don't want to induce stress in you, the listener, we do feel that it's necessary to talk about the various environmental issues befouling our planet. Let's never forget that we can gain power by way of knowledge, and change certainly has its root in awareness. With that in mind, I'll be touching upon some of the key elements that came out of this IPCC report. The last IPCC report was published in 2014 and provided some framework for the Paris Agreement. Let's go ahead and hop into this. In March, the International Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, released a new report. The IPCC is the body that advises the United Nations, or UN, on rising global temperatures. Now, This report aimed to look at the impacts, adaptation, and vulnerabilities associated with the climate crisis. The report was actually written by 270 scientists and researchers around the globe. We're going to present some of the findings here so that our listeners can get a basic overview of some of the important points touched upon by this report. Now, I do encourage you to go out and look up this report and read it for yourself. See what these scientists are coming up with and presenting, and this will allow you to interpret it in your own way. So, the report states that there is little chance of making our collective goal of stopping the planet from rising by 1.5 degrees centigrade. Now, they say this because the world has already warmed by 1.1 degrees centigrade, 
and it will likely reach that 1.5 degrees by 2030. So now at this time, the focus, therefore, should shift from not reaching that mark to coming back down from the inevitable rise. And this will require some type of technology to pull carbon from the air, or carbon capture. Along with this in the report, there's a renewed emphasis on getting to net zero. And this is where the amount of greenhouse gases does not increase. Now, according to the report, if we do not meet these goals, some species will no longer be able to adapt. And an example of this can be found in how coral reefs are incapable of adapting to a mass warming event, and so they just die. And this somewhat alludes to coral bleaching events. Climate actions that lead to social inequities and adverse outcomes are known as maladaptations. An example of this would be building seawalls to counter rising ocean levels only to find that said seawalls do not drain rainwater and lead to flooding. Now, often maladaptations affect marginalized and vulnerable communities. Now, it should be noted this report drew from qualitative social sciences such as philosophy and anthropology, which aren't seen as traditional climate study fields, and they're actually allowed to paint a richer portrait of the situation. Now, when we talked about the situation with oil extraction in the Niger Delta, we touched upon the social value of the wetlands in a culture, which were philosophical, ethical, and religious senses, and it's important work. For the first time, the IPCC report has also included some elements of indigenous knowledge. The report infers the lack of a future for coal, oil, and gas on a livable planet. And it also highlighted how wind and solar are now cheaper than sticking with fossil fuels. There are currently over 1 billion people living in low-lying settlements that could be affected by sea level rise, subsiding coasts, and flooding at high tides. As for big city dwellers, the threat of water scarcity looms the strongest. And of course, air pollution, as always, remains a threat as well. Now, the urban adaptations are said to be reasonable. And these would include physical barriers, using trees to provide shade for heat waves, and restoring mangroves to protect coastal communities from flooding. Now, this report showed a new emphasis on personal responsibility. So these personal responsibilities were plant-based diets, little to no air travel, voting in favor of bikeable cities, and using public transport. Now, as for the governments, the emphasis was on reforming transport, and low-carbon choices for industry and energy. 
while it's highly likely that we will not hit the last target of 1.5 degrees in temperature change, there is still time to act. But if we don't act in the next seven years, our actions will have effects that will reverberate across multiple millennia. Now, government commitments need to be upped by 2030 and net zero needs to be reached by 2050. And these measures will ensure that a warming will be maintained around 1.5 degrees centigrade by 2100. So climate change is no longer just about science. It's now mostly about politics, which personally is why I think things have gone so slow. People need to set their politics aside and focus on the science and realize that politics won't matter, nothing will matter, if we don't have a viable earth to live on. As I mentioned at the beginning of this specific topic, go ahead and go over to the UN's website and pull up this report. You can read it for yourself and see the changes that we need to make personally, governmentally, and socially to ensure the longevity of the places that we call home. I hope today's episode brought you some good information that you may not have heard of otherwise. We had a little bit we, we pretty much had a little bit of everything. We had things that affect, you know, small areas such as the Tennessee whiskey fungus. And we have things that really affect all of us, such as the IPCC report. Now, I encourage you to go out and find these things and read up on them yourself. There is always more information out there than what I'm bringing to the table. There's just too much information out there for one podcast to to gather and report on. Now, as always, I'll be keeping the pulse on the various environmental issues as they arise, and I'll keep all of you updated as things evolve. Now, today's initial research was done by Chloe Kibbe, and touched up by myself. I want to encourage you to go over to Instagram and give us a like and a follow. Our Instagram handle is at the Chronic Failure Podcast. I would also appreciate a like and follow on whatever streaming platform you are listening to this podcast on. This will allow the podcast to continue to give you the information that I feel is very important. Now, along with Instagram, you can always email us at info at chronicfailurepodcast.com. You can email us with questions. You can email us with potential episode topics, anything and everything That's where you can send it. Next week's episode will be on the Seveso chemical disaster. 
On July 10th, 1976, a valve broke at the industry Chemiche Mira Societa Azionaria, or ICMESA, chemical plant in Meta, just north of Milan, Italy. This accident resulted in the release of a chemical cloud containing the highly toxic dioxin TCDD. Winds carried the cloud southeast where it contaminated land and vegetation in the municipality of Seveso and other communities in the area. Hoffman La Roche, the company that ran the ICMESA plant, to produce pesticides, only admitted the accident almost one week after it had happened. By that time, the first cases of severe dioxin poisoning had already been reported, and a lot of the vegetation around the plant had wilted and thousands of animals had died. I hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, have a good one.